You're listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. All right, well, welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis. Um, really glad that you're here with us today. Um, I'm thrilled to be here today. This is week two back from uh, my six-week sabbatical. Um, if you missed last Sunday, I encourage you to uh, go back and listen to that as I give a personal update on how I'm doing working through, um, uh, I don't know, uh, eight, nine months of personal depression and, uh, and how the Lord has encouraged me um, through the, the time away. And i um, excited uh, to be alive, excited to be here, excited to be the husband of Jill, the father of our four kids, the pastor of the Axis, and your friend. Um, thank you for the feedback from last Sunday. Thank you for your prayers, your encouragement. Um, following last week's uh, time together. As we get going, I want to point out the fact that this is JJ and Bethany. That's my 20-year-old and 18-year-old. It is their last Sunday with us as they're going to be dropped off uh, at college this week, Bethany at Lipscomb tomorrow. Um, It's going to be a fun, thrilling day of sadness. And... um, and then dropping JJ off at Union in Jackson, Tennessee, in Jackson, Tennessee on Thursday. Um, this is, um, these are some pictures of our road trip uh, from Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, driving to Nashville, Tennessee on July 7th um, of 2009. Um, that's JJ and Bethany there. Um, and that's JJ in the Penske truck moving to Nashville. And uh, I've often wondered what he was thinking about as he left family, um, friends, uh, community, and school. Uh, There's Bethany asleep on my arm in the Penske truck. Um, I'm not getting emotional um, at all. There's Bethany. The one with the three of them, JJ, Bethany, and Caleb, uh, was actually, yeah, that's in a hotel as we were making our way here um, to plant the Axis Church. And uh, these two, um, including Caleb, but I'm only, only speaking of the two that are going to be starting as freshmen this week. Um, they have been faithful. They've been faithful ministers and church planters of the Axis uh, for more than 13 years. And uh, church family, um, as their pastor and as yours, um, I, commend, I commend them to you uh, and let you know that they deserve our respect, our honor, and our appreciation. And um, J.J., Where's JJ? JJ and Bethany. Um, no one knows, not even me, not mama, no one in this room knows how much that you too have sacrificed um, to get our church here um, to where it is even today. And um, thank you very much. Uh, well done. Very, very well done. Thank you for the years of service as children and as Axis Kids workers and as singers and servers and cleaners and painters and you name it. Um, Thank you very much. We'd like to give you this gift. JJ said, uh, feel free to to say all that to Bethany and not talk about me. Um, (laughs) um, I love you guys. Um, And that's not just uh, because I'm their dad. Um, Anyone who has served the way that they've served over these years. As the pastor overseeing this church, um, I say that as their pastor. I say that as their friend, a fellow ministry partner here at the Axis, here at the Axis who happens to be their daddy. 
Um, and so anyway, that's, that's a beautiful thing. Uh, well, much like last week, our sermon time this morning is going to be a little bit different than what is typical here at the Axis. Uh, typically, we work diligently through a certain text, usually from a particular book of the Bible, like Mark is where we're in the middle of right now. Um, but we usually go verse by verse, sometimes word by word, until we've completed that book. We went through Luke not long ago, uh, 104 weeks um, through the book of Luke. Um, Sunday, next Sunday, we're going to be looking a, a little bit deeper into the subject of fighting the drift as we talk about it in our sanctification, uh, fighting, the, fighting the drift, becoming uh, more and more like Jesus each day. And then the following, we're going to get back into uh, Mark. But today, we're going to be focusing our attention on preaching the gospel to our idols. That's the direction where we're going today, gospeling your idols or preaching the gospel to yourself. It was uh, in November, mid-November of 2008 in St. Louis, Missouri at the Journey Church on Kings Highway, uh, 312 miles from right here, that my life changed, and it did so by what some of what you're about to hear. Um, it was then and there that though I had been pastoring for 14 years, I became a Christian. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 21, we read this, little children, keep yourselves from idols. How do you do that? What's that look like? And then you read in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Run from idolatry. What's idolatry? What, what does this mean? How do we do this? Well, part of it is understanding what we mean by idols. Ken Sandy wrote this in his book, The Peacemaker. It's a good book. You should read it. He says, most of us think of an idol as, as I did as a kid, as a statue of wood or stone or metal that's worshipped by pagan people. But the concept of idolatry, the concept of, of idolatry is much broader and far more, more personal than that. An idol is anything apart from God that we depend on to be happy, fulfilled, or secure. In biblical terms, it's something other than God that we set our heart on that motivates us, that masters us, rules us, or that thing that we trust, fear, or serve. In short, it's something that we love and pursue and pursue more than God. It's something that drives us down deep. It consumes us. Dr. Timothy Keller, borrowing this from John Calvin, says, the human heart is an idol factory it produces idols. The human heart is an idol factory that takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify. They turn them into gods. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety, and fulfillment, if that's, the, that's a trick, if we attain them. Now, I believe these guys are correct, and if they are, then we can discover our idols in our hearts by asking certain questions. For instance, where do you find your significance? What do you point to to tell yourself and maybe others that, that you're important, that you matter? Where do you draw your confidence from? If you have this, you're more confident. That's taken away, you lose your confidence. What is that? Or what is it that makes the bottom fall out in your life? Like just, you just lose it. 
What is it that makes you angry? You know, anger usually erupts when an idol of our heart gets pushed off the shelf of our heart, where it disappoints us. It gets knocked off. Uh, or what, when your mind is free to wonder, where does it go? Where do you daydream about? Where do you spend money the easiest, most effortlessly, without even thinking? Where do you feel the greatest amount of regret or, or shame? Where is it that you feel the uh, deepest frustration or guilt? Who is it that if they acknowledged you, if they noticed you in a certain way and treated you in a certain way, then you'd be significant. You would matter. You'd be like, man, I've made it. I've made it. Who is it that if you had their approval that you would be important? Many of us are disappointed by our parents, our children, close friends, our spouse, and we're often so angered by them. And honestly, we may try to live our lives as if we can take it or leave it with their love and, and attention and approval. But this disappointment, this resentment, and this anger often, not always, but it often comes from us having idolized them in some way. And what we feel that we're indifferent about is really us being held captive by us having made them or something that they were to provide us with into an image that we worship or that we try to worship? Or what's the thing that if you had it, you would be important, you would be valuable, you would be not a bum? In the original epic Rocky film called Rocky, Sylvester Stallone, he's in bed talking to Adrian. By the way, when I, when I ask myself, am I a decent dad? One of the things I point to is that my 18-year-old daughter's favorite movie is Rocky. I'm like, I'm not that bad. <laughs> but in the original film, Rocky, Sylvester Stallone's laying in bed. Uh, Rocky is laying in bed uh, with Adrian, and he's talking about his upcoming fight with Apollo Creed. And he says to Adrian, all I want to do is go the distance. Talking about with Apollo Creed. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go that distance, you see, and the bell rings, you know, and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. What is that for you? What is it that if you had it, a position in a particular company, a promotion that's being offered, a particular level of education, acknowledgement being noticed by a, a person, a special person or a group of people. What is it that if you had it, you'd be significant, you'd be more significant, you would be more complete, you wouldn't be a bum. And you would know it. What is that? You know, idols can be selfish ambition for, for money, power, fame, recognition, but an idol can also be a physical object or a piece of property. They can be a truck. It can be a house. It can be the athletic performance or academic performance of your children. It can be a person, an activity, a job, an institution, a hope, an idea, or an image, a relationship, a friendship, a pleasure, or an experience. You see, these idols are often these good things that we worship and that we place our identity in, our value and our worth in, like food. Food, by far, for me personally, is the pet idol that I've, I've worshiped most of my life. 
And the only way I could get free from it is what we're digging into here. But I had to change my relationship with food. But an idol can be food. An idol can be friends. It can be career, a career path. It can be your health, your appearance, your particular platform, what it is that you're pushing, an agenda. It can be education. It can be entertainment. It can be your social media popularity and prominence as an influencer. It can be your reputation, how others think of you. But now let's, let's take, for example, let's flesh this out a little bit on working hard, like overworking, not being able to, to disengage from your job, like not just trying to work hard, which is what we should all do, but an obsession with work. You see, the gospel works within us, and it begs the question, why? Why am I driven the way that I am? Why am I obsessed with the idea of a relationship with that person, driven towards entertainment and sports? Why am I addicted to pornography? Why, why am I so addicted to, to sex or pleasure, drugs, alcohol, food? And the list goes on. Why, why does this consume me the way that it does? Why do these ideas trap my mind with these intrusive thoughts? Why, why is the idea of this promotion driving me the way that it does? What am I really trying to get? Why am I selfish? Why am I greedy? Why do I drift towards greed the way that I do, towards being selfish the way that I am? Why is my first reflex not generosity? Why is it stinginess? Why do I have to work through it so hard before I give the smallest of little things away to somebody? Why am I driven to perform the way that I am? Who am I trying to impress? What am I actually working for? What am I honestly looking for in my job? You'll see that a possibility over this obsession with work is a desire to be seen as valuable and necessary by others. Maybe to be recognized and appreciated, to no longer be overlooked, to be considered special to the team, important, significant, or... Perhaps you're overworking to earn more and more money because you're feeding that idea of comfort, popularity, safety, security to an unhealthy degree. But now think about this. At this point, you're no longer working to earn a living. You're no longer working for a paycheck. You're no longer working to simply help the team. Now you're putting your work to work for you. Now your job is employed by your drive to be appreciated and seen as unique. Now your coworkers are simply tools for your advancement. Or even worse, maybe they're now seen as enemies who are out to stop you and slow you down, and they might get what you feel like you deserve. They become either the means for you to get what you got to have, or they're against you, hindering you from you getting what you got to have. Manipulation, envy, jealousy, bitterness, pride. You begin doing anything and everything to satisfy this deep longing of your heart. You're now placing the weight of Savior on the shoulders of your work performance. And when you can't perform at that high level all the time, you damn yourself. It's devastating. It's embarrassing. You're now placing the weight of Savior on the shoulders of your boss. And if that boss, if she doesn't give you the, the recognition that you deserve, you curse her in your heart. You're so enraged. By the way, when we place the weight of Savior on anyone's shoulders, once they realize that, once they realize what you're doing, most people want out from under that burden. More often than not, they can pick up on it. 
quicker than what we think. And it feels oppressive, burdensome. It's just too much. They know they can't live up to that. They're not able to shoulder the weight of your identity and your meaning and your value and your worth as a human. They can't be an idol. They were never designed to be worshipped like that. They were designed to worship God, not to become one. So you know what happens. We jump from friendship to friendship, relationship to relationship, spouse to spouse, church to church, job to job, always believing that the issue is mainly with that particular friendship, relationship, spouse, church, when all along the issue often lies mainly upon us and our idol-producing, idol-worshiping hearts. Many in this room right now, many of you will be freed to love your spouse and your family, your parents, your children, your neighbors, your roommates, your friends, in a much better, healthier way if you would grasp what I'm, I'm trying my best to communicate here. You'd be free to love them well and to be loved well by them. When you place Savior weight on the shoulders of your job, it doesn't, when it doesn't give you what you were sure it was going to give you, you want to disappear. You want to leave. You want to quit. You want to change career paths. Perhaps you even want to quit life. When you place Savior weight on the shoulders of a particular group of people and they don't include you the way that you felt like they should, you want to disappear. You want to walk out. You want to leave. When you place Savior weight on the shoulders of your spouse and your spouse doesn't give you what you were sure to be yours, you want to quit. You want to start over again. When you place Savior weight on people recognizing you as unique in your struggle and they don't empathize with you the way that you want them to, you get bitter and you grow resentful to people who are actually trying to love you. You see, the idol we're worshiping begins to own us. And we got caught in this trap and this trick of the idol-producing heart within us. It begins to control our thoughts, our emotions, and our calendar. It takes over our social media accounts. It takes over our thought life. Our good day, bad day contrast is determined by our idols and how they serve us in our lives or how we serve them or how they fail us. The good day, bad day mentality is determined by how others recognize our skills, our talents, and our beauty or not. Our good day, bad day is determined by how others sympathize with us and notice us. Compliments or the lack thereof determines our emotions. Comments or likes on social media or lack thereof determines our emotional energy when we get home. We're trying to live our lives going back and forth between the opinion of others and our opinion of ourselves, and then God's opinion of us. It's much like in James 1 and 6, we become like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. We're, we're like a double-minded person, unstable in all their ways. I mean, we, we try finding consistent identity from others, which is rarely consistent, and it's never enough. When God has already declared over us our new identity, that is by far more significant and certainly consistent but we buy into the lie that we're going to be satisfied and, and satisfied and worth something by achievement or perhaps financial stability or recognition. But friend, there's a better way. Only God can satisfy your hearts in this way, in that deep, deep sense of identity, meaning, worth, value, belonging. Only God can do this through Christ Jesus in his indwelling, abiding spirit. 
at work in your heart and life and your mind that will guard you until the day of Christ Jesus. The gospel says that your identity and your meaning is settled. It's permanent. Through the work of Jesus, because of the love of God and the presence of his spirit working within you, the the cry of the gospel loudly declares, Jesus makes you impressive. Jesus makes you impressive. You're enough already. It's settled. It's finished. You're not going to add to it. You can't take away from it. It's not dependent upon you. It was dependent upon him, and he crushed it. And you get credit for his hard work. You see, when Jesus came to us, we were finally told that we were noticed, that we're valuable, that we're loved. One of my favorite Christmas songs is O Holy Night. For the line, this one line, when he appeared, the soul felt its what? Worth. I must matter. He noticed me. He noticed us in our sinful condition. That's how we know that we're important is because 2,000 years ago, God showed up in the flesh to save us. That's how you know that you're worth something because God said, you're worth my son. Die in their place so I can have them. That's how you know that you're worth something and that is incomparable to whether you get likes on Facebook. It's not even in the same category. Nowhere close. Only a personal relationship with God, your creator, can tell you what you're truly worth. And because of Jesus, God now looks at you and he sees you as righteous, as perfect, good enough, good enough. It's great. He now says over every Christian, this is my beloved son and daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And living from God's opinion of us, because of Jesus, it brings into our life what we're looking for, stability, security, safety. This is the identity that we've been longing for. Jesus calls you his friend, according to John 15, 15. And he'll never send you away. He'll never dismiss you. God calls you son and daughter, and he'll never give you the cold shoulder. You're never going to be too much for him. You can never be too honest with him. You can, he'll never leave you and he'll never move on from you. And the gospel tells you that you're appreciated, that you're cherished because of what Jesus did by grace and grace alone. However, the gospel is unfortunately grossly misunderstood in much of the Christian church today. It's perceived and understood simply as the entry to, to God rather than the entire path we travel once we've been rescued by God. It's as if it's step one of the ladder of the Christian life, rung number one on this ladder. Many believe the gospel is a magic prayer that simply saves you from hell. And then the gospel is left behind so that you can move on to the bigger and better things of Christianity. The gospel in the church today is unfortunately seen as baby food. But the book of Revelation and systematic theology, and exegetical fallacies. There's the good stuff. God have mercy on us. Friend, the gospel is not only what saves us. It is what transforms us from one degree to the next after we're saved, as we're being saved. The gospel is what makes us right with God. It justifies us in the courtroom of heaven, We are declared innocent, we're declared perfect, 
we're declared justified. That's what the gospel does. But it also frees us and empowers us to delight in God. That is our our sanctification. As we pursue holiness, godliness, running from evil, running from wicked, running towards obedience before God. So if there's a ladder of the Christian life, the gospel's not step one, it's the whole ladder, all of it. And you never outgrow your need for it. And we should never outgrow our appreciation for it either. And over the past 14 years of my life, I've learned that the gospel works in our hearts like a searchlight, that it's more than a noun, it's a verb, it's active. It's revealing the dark areas of the depths of our soul down to the motive level. It's like a shovel that digs to the root cause of my sin. It digs down to my motive, to my shame, and to my disappointment. It reveals to me my idols so that I can repent and confess and experience what we're all looking for, true, lasting change. It brings freedom. My idols, like, why is it that I do what I do? Down to the deep motive level and desire. My idols, like, what am I truly after when I'm sinning? My idols are those systemic issues of my sin. I learned 14 years ago that the gospel is for the Christian. The gospel is for everyone today. As Christians, as believers, it's the power of God to continue to save. Read 1 Corinthians 15 sometime this week on this. 1 Corinthians 15. I mean, gospel is good news that speaks to our bad news. You see, we, we're sinners. We're corrupted. We're ruined by sin. We're unable, disqualified to be in relationship with God, our creator. But part of our problem is the belief that we can be satisfied and made better and whole, truly satisfied by things other than God. And those other things are the idols of our hearts. But the gospel tells us that Jesus came to deal personally with our sin problem. Jesus Christ came to live perfectly for you. Jesus Christ came to die as you in your place. Jesus Christ came to bear the wrath of God in your place for your sin upon his own shoulders so you wouldn't have to experience the wrath of God or ever dread or fear the wrath of God. He took it upon himself and his shoulders can handle it. He came to destroy the works of Satan, to kill death once and for all. He came to save us back to the Father because he was sent by the Father to make us sons and daughters of God out of unforeseen grace and mercy. And we're told plainly in Scripture that he did this because he loved us. And now, by faith in the finished work of Jesus, you get to experience life in Christ today and true, lasting, deep soul satisfaction. But now here's the key in applying this truth to your heart and to your mind. It's daily, moment by moment, temptation by temptation, sin by sin, disappointment by disappointment, applying this gospel to your heart and mind. That is what brings change. And that is what invites hope into your life that you can be free, that you can be free. You see, the the gospel, it reveals our idols and it invites us into repent to experience this true change. This is how the gospel goes to work, goes to work in the life of the Christian. So many of us, including myself, want to change, to change, to truly change, not modify for a moment and then drift back, but to change, to experience freedom, to become better and different altogether, to become more whole, more complete. Here's where it comes from. A healthy, happy, fun, and growing Christian is one who's actively, consistently discovering their idols more frequently and repenting of their idolatry early and often. 
but a dangerous and bitter Christian, unhappy Christian, is one who is oblivious to their idols, who make the main issue something other than their sin that needs to be repented of and their idols that need to be destroyed, or maybe they try to explain away or excuse their idolatry and spend their time justifying why they did what they did. That's a dangerous person. A dangerous and resentful Christian is one whose answer to joy within is based on other people changing and not themselves. Think of it this way. Why why do we lie? Why do we fail to love those around us the right way? Why do we break our promises and, and fail to keep our word at times? Why are we selfish? Why do we constantly experience a form of disappointment so frequently? Why do, I, why do I always seem to be crushed by those who I'm trying to love well? I mean, of course, we can always go because sin, right? Like, because we're weak and sinful. But the specific answer is that there's something else besides Jesus Christ that I'm believing will make me happy. And I've got to have it to be happy. Something that's more important to my heart than God and intimacy with him. Something that's enslaving my heart through excessive desires. So then the key to change then is to identify the idols of our hearts. Dr. Ed Welch wrote this, either we will love and serve God or we will love and serve our idols. Idols exist in our lives because we love them and invite them in. But once idols find a home, they're unruly and resist leaving. In fact, they change from being the servants of our desires to being our masters. But what if you could work your job with total joy? What if you could, from the depths of sincerity in your heart, celebrate your coworker's promotion? What if you were totally free to love your spouse and not see them as the means to the end of your significance and worth? Many who are unmarried are happy and content in their lives and their careers. And it's a blessing. It's attractive. They're free. But there are also many who become bitter. And they shared this with me in their their honesty. It's really sweet to share something like that. What happens, though, is they're often viewing their future spouse as the missing piece of their identity. And that once they're married, they're going to be complete. It's like in rom-coms. You know, it's like, oh, you complete me. Wow, save your weight. Be careful. That's not how it needs to work. Your incomplete sense of self will roll on into your marriage like you hope your vacation does at your job. And the weight that you're placing on your soon-to-be spouse is going to be crushing the one that you love. They'll be suffocated by the savior weight. What you need to be complete is not a spouse or a job or recognition. It's understanding your identity in Jesus Christ. And it's hearing and believing more and more often of what God thinks of you. It's preaching the gospel to your soul, directly to your idols at times. This is part of what brings freedom. Digging for idols is like digging for treasure, except you're not trying to dig for something that you like and that's going to bring you joy. You're digging for something that's lying to you about joy. And you're trying to, um, if you can name it, you can tame it sort of idea. Let's identify this so that we can rid it out of our lives and find what I'm looking for here in Christ. You find what's keeping you from joy. 
the gospel continually applied and believed will ask this statement. Am I looking for something in, and fill in the blank, whatever it might be. Am I looking for something in food, for instance, in this relationship, whatever it might be, that Jesus offers me more fully and completely? But here's the key in practicing this and applying this, and this is what rocked my world 14 years ago. To debunk or replace an idol, to, to get it out of your life, to have it swapped out with something better and deeper, you've got to learn to rejoice, to truly find joy in that particular, in the particular thing that Jesus provides that replaces that particular idol of your heart. In other words, whenever you see your heart in the grip of some sort of disobedience or misery or temptation, relationship, anxiety, anger, whatever it might be, always ask, how are these effects being caused by an excessive hope for something or someone to give me what really only God can give me? Or how does God give me so much more fully and graciously and perfectly the very thing I'm looking for elsewhere? And then you find that truth in scripture, in God, you consider what God has done, what Christ has done, and what Jesus has given you. Remember how we look at repentance. Repentance is turning to Jesus to find what you thought could be found elsewhere. Thomas Chalmers understood this principle, and this is one of my favorite quotes. He says this, he said this, he died in 1847, it's been a minute. He said, <clears throat> It is seldom that any of our bad habits or flaws are made to disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. In other words, your, your idolatry doesn't drift away. At least it is very seldom that this is done through the instrumentality of reasoning or by the mere force of mental determination. I just want to quit this. I don't want it to be like this anymore. I don't want to care about this. I don't want this to consume me the way it does. Really, really bad. Does that make it go away? No. But what cannot be thus destroyed may be dispossessed, removed. And one taste may be made to give away to another and to lose its power entirely as the reigning affection of the mind. The heart's desire for having some one object or other, this is unconquerable. We're always going to be reaching for stuff. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection, an idol that we're trying to get rid of, is by the expulsive power of a new one. The expulsive power of a new one. It is when admitted into the number of God's children through faith that is in Jesus Christ that the spirit of adoption is poured upon us. It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires in its idolatry and is the only way in which deliverance, rescue, and help, and freedom is possible. In other words, when the child has your car keys, when the child has the remote control, you say, give it to me, it clenches tighter. You gotta give them something worth exchanging. That's better. You get a piece of candy. You get a matchbox car. You're like, what about this, huh? And that little toddler will just drop it and just walk over there to you and be like, and you're like, sucker. You, know, like, you grab it, <laughs> right? Thomas Chalmers says, in order to rid ourselves of our idolatry, we've got to find something worth dropping the idol from our hands and our hearts, grasping onto something that our heart sees as better. Friend, God is the better. He really is. 
In other words, you can't just slap your hand of your idol-worshiping grip that's going out and just say, Jeremy, stop it. No more. Quit it. I'm serious this time. No more. Because here's why. You've got worship going towards that idol. You've got passion. You've got emotion. You've got feeling. You've got pursuit flowing from your heart at a deep, deep level of who you are as a person. And it's genuine worship going towards that idol, towards that idea, towards that person. You've got genuine worship and it's real worship. And it's grasping for identity. It's grasping, asking, do I matter? It's grasping for purpose. It's grasping for value. You were created to worship. But the difference between obedience and disobedience, between Christian worship and sinful worship, is what you're setting your affections on, what you're esteeming and valuing and placing value upon. You know how to worship. You are created with the knowledge and the craving, the desire to worship. God designed you this way. So it's a matter of what you're worshiping. And growing freedom from idolatry and sin and increasing joy in our lives comes from repentance and the redirection of those worshipful thoughts and reaches and feelings from whatever else it might be back to God and finding the fullness there. The Christian life is learning what it's like to have satisfaction, not in the worship of other things, but in God alone. Where and what is it that you're looking to for something else to provide for you what only God can fully give you? Remember, repentance is turning to Jesus to find what you thought could be found elsewhere. Are you experiencing frequent conviction, authentic repentance, full repentance, digging with your shovel, so to speak? Fun Christians do. Healthy Christians do. Are, is, is the understanding and impact of the gospel growing and deepening in your life? It is for the happy Christian. Or is it something that you thought about at VBS 20 years ago, five years ago, 50 years ago? Are you aware of your idols? Are you thinking about these sorts of things? Are you preaching the gospel to yourself? Are you preaching the gospel of Christ to your idols? When you sin, are you asking why? Or are you just telling yourself, shame on you, Jeremy, try harder next time? Jesus didn't have to die for that. And you'll die for that. When you're angered, do you spend time digging with your gospel shovel, discovering why you are so angry over this? And don't be so quick to look to others. Always look within. Gospel yourselves. Ask others to help you dig. Ask others to join you in learning the art of this gospel digging and this gospel searchlight. Finding those idols of the heart. There's often much better fruit of your repentance when you're being helped by others. And you get there faster. You get deeper faster when you've got someone with you trying to help you dig to the root of your despair and disappointment, asking you certain questions like the ones that we've talked about today. And you know what? Here's the beautiful thing. Because of Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross, we don't have to fear being exposed as needy, broken sinners as we are. Because our hope is not in our performance or our achievement or our obedience or what others think of us. Our hope is in, is in the perfect obedience of Christ, which is now ours as if it, we have achieved it ourselves. 
And if you believe this about Jesus, you're a Christian. Believing this is how one becomes a Christian. Continuing believing this, believing this more consistently, you will experience renewed health, clarity, and vitality in your mind and in your heart and in your Christian faith. Your confidence, your poise, your stability in all of your relationships. You'll have such freedom. You'll be so fun to be around because you're not throwing Savior weight on people. This is the gospel going to work for us. It frees us. My prayer, my hope is that I'll experience this more and that you will experience this more and that we will experience practically the gospel of Jesus Christ and apply it to our lives more often. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.